It is a pleasure to be once again in Grand Rapids. I've been here a number of times before on various kinds of business and non-business since seven-eighths of my relatives are from Michigan. I'm looked upon as the oddball in the family because I'm from Pennsylvania, that benighted area. I'm also grateful to Richard Norton Smith and the Gerald Ford Museum and the Gerald Ford Foundation for the opportunity to speak to you tonight and to Eric Nelson of the museum for chauffeuring me around so patiently, uh, picking me up at the airport, getting me to the hotel, getting me here. I'm also grateful to Grand Valley State University, uh, to the university's new president, Mark Murray, to outgoing president, uh, emeritus president, as I understand, Don Lubbers, who I sat with um, at dinner and told Lincoln stories to, and he was very kind enough to laugh at them. And to one of the other sponsors uh, of this lecture series, uh, the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies and Patricia Olt, who is the interim director of that center. My thanks to you all for the opportunity to be with you this evening and to ask the question, how Abe Lincoln lost the black vote. No other American president has wielded the power of words with greater skill than Abraham Lincoln. No one can read Mr. Lincoln's state papers without perceiving in them a most remarkable facility of putting things so as to commend the attention and assent of the people, wrote Henry J. Raymond, the editor of the New York Times in 1864. And Raymond had an editor's eye for this sort of thing. Massachusetts Congressman George Boutwell, reminiscing for Alan Thorndike Rice 20 years after Lincoln's death, thought that Lincoln's fame would be carried along the ages by his writings. And especially, said Boutwell, the three great papers, the Proclamation of Emancipation, his oration at Gettysburg, and his second inaugural address. Not too many, even today, would disagree with Raymond and Boutwell about Lincoln's preeminence not just as a politician, but as an eloquent one at that. But what may jar us about Boutwell's praise is the order in which he placed his top three Lincoln picks. The second inaugural comes in third, the Gettysburg Address second, and the Emancipation Proclamation first. But putting the proclamation first was not just a slip of Boutwell's pen, because Boutwell was convinced that the proclamation was Lincoln's greatest document. Boutwell wrote, if all that Lincoln said and was should fail to carry his name and character to future ages, the emancipation of four million human beings by his single official act is a passport to all of immortality that earth can give. There is no other individual act performed by any person on this continent that can be compared with it. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution were each the work of bodies of men. The proclamation of emancipation in this respect stands alone. The responsibility was wholly upon Lincoln. The glory is chiefly his. No one can now say whether the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution of the United States or the proclamation of emancipation was the highest, best gift to the country and to mankind. Nor was Boutwell alone in the years after the Civil War 
in giving the Emancipation Proclamation pride of place among Lincoln's achievements. The proclamation announced the abolitionist Robert Dale Owen forms an era in our national history. It severed the past from the future. Isaac Arnold, who sat with Boutwell in the wartime Congress, portrayed Lincoln's stupendous decree of immediate emancipation as the dream of his youth, the aspiration of his life. When Lincoln's tomb was formally dedicated in 1874, the figure of Lincoln standing before the tomb's obelisk held a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation in its left hand. And eight of the 11 outdoor statues of Lincoln installed in public squares and parks before the end of that century depicted him in various poses with the Emancipation Proclamation. But in all of these high praises for the Emancipation Proclamation, a certain note of ambivalence was present. Unlike the other two of the three great papers, admirers of the proclamation wavered unsteadily between the document itself and the political consequences that flowed from it. One reason for this ambivalence was certainly stylistic. Unlike the Gettysburg Address or the Second Inaugural, the Emancipation Proclamation had not been written with a view towards speaking and it lacked the guiding purpose of Lincoln's other rhetorical masterpieces, the desire to persuade. It had no fourscore and seven years ago. It had no with malice toward none. One of the first voices to send up wisps of sarcasm over the proclamation's language was Karl Marx, the author of a few proclamations and manifestos of his own. <laughs> Marx was half amused that Lincoln's language in the Emancipation Proclamation reminded him of ordinary summonses sent by one lawyer to another on the opposing side. But the unkindest cut at the proclamation came from the hands of the modern American historian Richard Hofstadter. In Hofstadter's savage essay on Lincoln in The American Political Tradition and the Men Who Made It, Hofstadter's book of 1948. Lincoln's opposition to slavery, in Hofstadter's reckoning, was kindled only by the threat slavery posed to free white labor and the development of industrial capitalism. No one, therefore, should be fooled by the proclamation. Its motives were entirely other than had been advertised, and that was what explained its stylistic flaccidity. Had the political strategy of the moment, wrote Hofstadter, called for a momentous human document of the stature of the Declaration of Independence, Lincoln could have risen to the occasion. Instead, what he composed on New Year's Day, 1863, had, as Hofstadter wrote, all the moral grandeur of a bill of lading. It accomplished nothing, said Hofstadter, because it was intended to accomplish nothing beyond its propaganda value. The influence of Hofstadter's easily memorable quip about the moral grandeur of a bill of lading has had long innings, and even among the most favorably disposed of modern Lincoln biographers, like David Donald. Because many Lincoln biographers even today have found themselves forced to concede that the proclamation lacked the memorable rhetoric of his most 
notable utterances. On the other hand, it is another matter entirely to assume that this failure of eloquence on Lincoln's part was some mysterious key to Lincoln's real intentions. But that is exactly what has become almost an unquestioned wisdom among the constituency supposed to be the proclamation's chief beneficiaries, African Americans. In the jubilation that surrounded the arrival of emancipation, free blacks in the North and enslaved blacks in the South rejoiced at the sound of Lincoln's name and glossed over the fact that the proclamation was limited by Lincoln only to slaves in the Confederate States, not to Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, or Delaware, and even then only to those areas of the Confederacy not yet occupied by the Union Army. Still, for blacks, Lincoln was our Moses, so wrote Elijah Mars, who had run away from slavery to join a Union regiment. Lincoln was indeed our Moses, remembered another African-American soldier. He gave us our freedom. Or if not Moses, Lincoln was even more exalted. Lincoln died for we, Christ died for we, and me believe him the same man's, said one freed slave on Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. John Hay, Lincoln's private secretary and emissary at large, remembered a prayer meeting at Hilton Head, where a youngster announced that he would like to see Lincoln. Hay wrote in his diary, a gray-haired patriarch rebuked the rash wish, saying, no man see Lincoln. Lincoln walk as Jesus walk. No man see Lincoln. The black soldiers whose enlistments in the Union Army were made possible by the proclamation adopted resolutions of gratitude. We cannot express in words our love for the President of the United States, as language is too weak to convey that estimation in which we hold him. When Lincoln's carriage passed a brigade of black soldiers supporting the siege of Petersburg, Virginia in 1864, they broke ranks and surrounded Lincoln's entourage with shouts of, Hurrah for the Liberator! Hurrah for the President! More than 70 years after the proclamation, Former slaves interviewed as part of the Works Project Administration's Slave Narrative Project spoke of Lincoln as a good man and wanted everybody to be free, both white and black. But even then, the note of ambivalence was there again. Frederick Douglass, who had impatiently snapped at Lincoln on the pages of Douglass Monthly for sloth and indifference to the issue of slavery, came away from his first meeting with Lincoln in August of 1863, surprised to find the president, the first great man that I talked with in the United States freely, who in no single instance reminded me of the difference between himself and myself on the difference of color. Douglas spoke of Lincoln in a eulogy in December of 1865 as emphatically the colored man's president. And in 1883, Douglas praised Lincoln as the greatest statesman that ever presided over the destinies of this republic and the one man of all the millions of our countrymen to whom we are more indebted than to any other. Yet, 
1876, with emancipation yielding few of the fruits that blacks had anticipated, Douglas sounded a more embittered note. Speaking of the dedication of Thomas Ball's emancipation statue in Washington, D.C., Douglas described Lincoln as a white man and shared the prejudices common to his countrymen toward the colored race. While it was true, Douglas said, that in his heart of hearts he loathed and hated slavery, that was not the same thing as sympathy with the victims of it. We are, at best, only his stepchildren, Douglas cautioned. Lincoln was not, in the fullest sense of the word, either our man or our model. From the genuine abolition ground, Mr. Lincoln seemed tardy, cold, dull, and indifferent. It was only when one stepped back and saw Lincoln against the seething background of white racism across the Union that the great emancipator appeared swift, zealous, radical, and determined. Douglass's suspicions, however, remained comparatively isolated among African-American opinion, and with good reason. Lincoln, the emancipator, turned out to be vital to African-American identity after the Civil War, in something of the same way that discovering that we are the lost heirs of some remote rich uncle makes us want to claim closer ties with Uncle Moonbeam than may really have existed. In other words, it strengthens our claim to a share in the estate. Similarly, the African-American adulation of Lincoln had a sharp political edge to it. If blacks could claim themselves as the heirs of Lincoln's special attention and interest as the great emancipator, then that strengthened their claim to a share in the American dream. Booker T. Washington, who came the closest of any African American to being a sort of national spokesman for American blacks in the Jim Crow era, lauded Lincoln in 1891 as that great man, the first American. And in his autobiography, Washington claimed, I think I do not go too far when I say that I have read nearly every book and magazine article that has been written about Abraham Lincoln. In literature, he has been my patron saint. In the 1918 poster, Welcome Home, a black soldier returning from the First World War greets his family underneath a portrait of Lincoln on the wall. The 1919 print, The Emancipation Proclamation, surrounds a central oval of Lincoln with vignettes of African-American accomplishments. In 1913, the 50th anniversary of the proclamation brought on a rush of black celebrations. A bill to fund a national emancipation exhibition died in Congress after lengthy hearings, but other states and cities sponsored a full calendar of events to mark the anniversary. In North Carolina, the Negro Ex-Slaves Association organized a reunion of former slaves. In Richmond, a National Negro Exposition debuted in the summer of 1915. In Chicago, 135,000 people turned out for exhibitions 
that memorialized Lincoln and the progress of American blacks since the proclamation. W.E.B. Du Bois, the leading black intellectual of his generation, wrote a pageant of Negro history for the NAACP entitled The Star of Ethiopia to commemorate emancipation. And for nine nights in October of 1913, it packed the 12th Regiment Armory in New York City with 3,000 people attending each night. James Weldon Johnson composed an ode for the front page of the New York Times on New Year's Day 1913 entitled 50 Years, hailing the Emancipation Proclamation as the beginning of black freedom. O oh, brothers mine, wrote Johnson, today we stand where half a century sweeps our ken, since God, through Lincoln's ready hand, struck off our bonds and made us men. For at least another generation, the image of Lincoln and the proclamation still exerted a powerful pull on black loyalties. The rise of Jim Crow segregation in the South occurred hand-in-hand hand with the efforts of Southerners to downplay the significance of slavery both in the Civil War and for Lincoln. And blacks battled back by keeping slavery and Lincoln's image as the great emancipator at the forefront of the nation's memory of the war. There is a belated but persisting view of this great character as a sort of sublimated politician concerned only with saving the Union, warned Albert Pillsbury of Howard University. But this, Pillsbury explained, was only the tactic of southern white racists who wanted to deprive blacks of Lincoln's mantle. Even Paul Robeson, at the nether end of the political spectrum from any Republican, still invoked the name of Lincoln, this time as a kind of honorary socialist. In 1951, speaking at the funeral of Mother Bloor, Robeson grouped Bloor in the tradition of Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, John Brown, Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and Thaddeus Stevens, thereby creating one of the most jumbled versions of ancestor worship yet seen in America. And little more than a decade later, Martin Luther King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to tell of his dream of racial harmony and call upon Americans to fulfill the promise of Lincoln's momentous decree. But even as King spoke, a vast disenchantment with Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation was struggling to the surface of African American culture. It was a disenchantment that had long roots back to Frederick Douglass and the failure of Reconstruction. But it had even more to do with the rise, between 1920 and 1960, of a self-assertive black middle class which increasingly resented owing homage to any whites, including Lincoln. No one traced the arc of this disenchantment with greater accuracy than W.E.B. Du Bois. Born free and of mixed-race parentage in Massachusetts, and boasting a Ph.D. from the University of Berlin, Du Bois felt no need to drape himself in the protective imagery of Abraham Lincoln. In 1922, 
As editor of the NAACP's magazine, The Crisis, Du Bois shocked black and white readers equally by describing Lincoln as a poor Southern white of illegitimate birth, poorly educated, and unusually ugly, awkward, ill-dressed. That he should also be the author of Black Freedom only showed to Du Bois that he was big enough to be inconsistent, cruel, merciful, peace-loving, a fighter, despising Negroes and letting them fight and vote, protecting slavery and freeing slaves. The subsequent outcry to this editorial forced Du Bois to recant on the pages of The Crisis. But Du Bois could not surrender his criticism entirely. And he warned American blacks not to be so naive as to forget that the same Lincoln who wrote the proclamation had also uttered a string of racist and derogatory comments about blacks during the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858. Once he left the crisis in 1936, Du Bois issued no more qualifications about his disenchantment with Abraham Lincoln. In a lecture that year on the Negro and social reconstruction, Du Bois mentioned Lincoln as the champion of colonization, not emancipation. In 1952, as Du Bois plunged further into Marxism and Pan-Africanism, he mocked the naive belief that Lincoln had any interest in the slaves for their own sake. The Civil War resulted in emancipation for the slaves, not because the North or Abraham Lincoln fought for this, but because freedom for the slaves whose labor supported the South was the only way to win the war. The only good thing Du Bois could say about the proclamation at the end of his life was that the task was left unfinished. And that comment Du Bois never published. Du Bois died an expatriate in Ghana in 1963, the year of the proclamation centennial. This time, unlike 1913, the anniversary arrived under a cloud of bitterness and denial. The long, dry decades of Jim Crow had rendered the Emancipation Proclamation remote, almost impotent in black minds. The organizer of a symposium on the proclamation at the University of Chicago wondered sardonically why there was not a grand and official national celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And he answered his question with another question. What is there to celebrate? James Baldwin, in The Fire Next Time, advised his nephew that the country is celebrating 100 years of freedom 100 years too soon. The Emancipation Proclamation was only a technical emancipation in Baldwin's eyes, so long as the African American remained the most despised creature in his country. Martin Duberman's play, in White America, which debuted in 1963, rehearsed the history of black freedom in just the fashion of the 1913 emancipation pageants. But this time, Duberman's was a drama of bitterness and unslacked thirst, with no mention at all of Abraham Lincoln. 
the civil rights movement of the 1950s could still invoke the name of Lincoln from time to time. Roy Wilkins admitted in his autobiography to rubbing the head of Lincoln. Not the literal head, a bust of Lincoln which Attorney General Ramsey Clark kept in his office. He rubbed the head of Lincoln as often as I often did when we were squeezed into an awful corner. But the leadership of the civil rights movement clearly owed its inspiration to other sources than Abraham Lincoln. Martin Luther King made occasional references to Lincoln and the proclamation, but his practical ideal and model was Gandhi. Echoing Du Bois, King described Lincoln the night before his own assassination in Memphis as a vacillating president who finally decided that he had no choice but to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. Black historian John Hope Franklin issued a short history of the proclamation for the centennial that still cast Lincoln in the role of great emancipator, but Franklin's voice was lost in the fracturing of the Civil Rights Crusade and the breaking away of a black power movement which wanted nothing to do with Lincoln, the proclamation, or anything else white liberals wanted to offer. As Julius Lester wrote in Look Out Whitey, Black Power's Gonna Get Your Mama in 1968, blacks have no reason to feel grateful to Abraham Lincoln. How come it took him two whole years to free the slaves? His pen was sitting on his desk the whole time. Disenchantment now turned into outright denunciation, marked vividly in February of 1968 when Lerone Bennett, editor of the magazine Ebony, posed the wickedly provocative question, was Abe Lincoln a white supremacist, on the pages of his magazine. Student protesters that year at Howard University at once took up the cry, denouncing Abraham Lincoln as a reactionary white supremacist and repudiating any civil rights strategy based on molding the black student into a strange and pathetic hybrid acceptable to whites. The Howard students had forgotten that only 50 years before, the denunciation of Lincoln as a white supremacist had been the tactic of segregationists and white supremacists of the real article. Lerone Bennett spent the next 30 years refining and enlarging his case against Lincoln and the proclamation. And when it emerged in its fullest form in 1999 as forced into glory, Abraham Lincoln's white dream, Bennett indicted Lincoln as a calculating bigot who issued the Emancipation Proclamation precisely to head off the real emancipation that abolitionists and blacks were pressing for. Bennett wrote, Lincoln believed until his death that the Negro was the other the inferior, the subhuman, who had to be, Lincoln said it was a necessity, subordinated, enslaved, quarantined to protect the sexual, social, political, and economic interests of whites. Everything he did, everything he said, even the speeches his defenders are always praising, was based on this racist idea which defined his life and his politics. While Bennett's book was scorned and sometimes caricatured by white reviewers, 
Pulitzer Prize winner James M. McPherson entitled his New York Times review of Bennett, Lincoln the Devil. Nevertheless, Bennett's book awakened its readers to what is surely one of the most dramatic transformations in American historical self-understanding in the past century. And that is the slow, almost unnoticed withdrawal of African Americans from what was once the great consensus of blacks' admiration for Abraham Lincoln. When a year after Forced into Glory was published, Bennett was invited to lecture at the Schomburg Library in Harlem, white participants in the program were visibly shaken, not only by Bennett's violent harangue against Lincoln, but by the enthusiastic applause, laced with anti-Semitic comment, of the audience at the Schomburg Library. Bennett's acid skepticism scorches more than just the historical standing of Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation. The withdrawal from Lincoln by many African Americans has moved in step with the emergence of a profound nihilism in the minds of many Americans, black and white, a nihilism which sees no meaning in American freedom and no hope for real racial progress. At just the moment when the engagement of blacks and whites as Americans together has never been more necessary, simply as William Julius Wilson argues, in the name of economic survival, in the face of devastating economic globalization, even at the moment when, as Orlando Patterson has reminded us, American blacks have never been closer to the goal of economic and civil integration into the American mainstream. The levels of resentment, despair, and alienation over America's racial future have never been higher. Bennett's book was an uncomfortable marker of the depth of that bitterness and alienation funneled at the single largest popular symbol of racial reconciliation in American history. For all of Bennett's occasional gestures toward rainbow politics, the full effect of forced into glory was contempt for the American experiment as it has been lived out and for Lincoln as its badge of hope. Bennett, after all, had no desire to diminish Lincoln's historical importance. Lincoln is a key, he wrote, perhaps the key to the American personality. And what we invest in him and hide in him is who we are. That Bennett acknowledged and he cheerfully admitted that any book about Lincoln and emancipation is a book about race, heroes, leadership, political morality, scholarship, and the American dream. The difference was that Bennett was dubious if not simply hopeless, about them all. Far from diminishing Lincoln, Bennett saw Lincoln's importance at the vortex of America's racial struggle as a sign of how overwhelming the odds were against equality and reconciliation. In what amounted to a complete reversal of historical standing, Lincoln belonged not to the ages, but to the Confederacy. Let me agree with Lerone Bennett in at least one respect. 
If the Emancipation Proclamation was the empty and faint-hearted gesture of an unrepentant racist, then the whole history of American racial politics that flows downstream from the proclamation becomes tainted. And the hope for a rainbow nation becomes little more than that, with no evidence of real historical roots or real historical precedent. If Abraham Lincoln can be unmasked as a manipulative politician, an ill-disguised white demagogue who never wanted to issue such a proclamation in the first place, and who ended up issuing one which had no actual force or intention behind it, then the expectation of a future for white and black Americans as co-workers in the great American project of liberty and equality collapses in helplessness and disappointment. If Abraham Lincoln is a racial fraud, America is a fraud. If the Emancipation Proclamation is a myth, then American freedom is a myth. What I have sought here tonight is to remind us of the central importance the proclamation once occupied in the minds of black and white Americans alike in its own day. I want us to recognize the proclamation as the most socially revolutionary pronouncement of any American president and to restore the proclamation to a position in the canon of African-American testimonies to freedom and deliverance. At the same time, I want to raise an equally important question about reform movements and American legal and constitutional theory. Lincoln was, in many respects, our last Enlightenment politician, especially in the sense that he was guided, like the founders, by an Enlightenment politics of prudence. A major problem for us in understanding the Emancipation Proclamation is that this prudential politics was, even in Lincoln's lifetime, being eroded by a romantic Kantian politics of absolutism, which allowed for no compromises with the demands of free will, choice, and autonomy. From the 19th century abolitionists to modern constitutional theory, Kantianism, especially in the contemporary work of John Rawls, has held much of the ground of public ethics, casting Lincolnian prudence further and further into the shade and forcing us to ask questions about Lincoln's motives in emancipation as though they were merely matters of his own impulse or preference. The underlying question of Lincoln's strategy in emancipation is not so much a problem of race or Lincoln's timing or the pressures of the Civil War as it is an unsuspected problem in American intellectual history. The displacement of prudence by absolutism, of the enlightenment by romanticism. Most important though, I believe that Lincoln understood that his Emancipation Proclamation did more merely than strike off the chains of slavery. I believe that he understood the proclamation inevitably entailed citizenship and civil equality for American blacks. 
In his last public speech on April 11, 1865, Lincoln praised the fledgling Reconstruction government of Louisiana for giving the benefit of public schools equally to black and white and empowering the legislature to confer the elective franchise upon the colored man. By the time of his last cabinet meeting, on the day of his assassination, Lincoln's expressions in favor of the liberality toward Negro citizens in the reorganization of the defeated Confederacy were, according to the radical journalist Whitlaw Reed, fuller and more emphatic than at any earlier time. In the end, Lincoln's death at the hands of John Wilkes Booth, a Negrophobe who was enraged at Lincoln's endorsement of black civil equality, his assassination and death were directly linked to those expressions in favor of Negro citizens. If the proclamation was, as Hofstadter insisted, a bill of lading, then it was a bill of lading that itemized the destinies of four millions of human beings bound in the way of danger for the port of American freedom. Thank you very much.